You guys are so sweet. <laughs> uh, so I'd like to start off today by just saying, man, I am so honored to serve this house and to be on this team. It is incredible. I met Pastor Aaron a couple months ago. He came to my church in Arizona to guest speak. And afterwards, we went out to lunch, and three things became immediately apparent about Pastor Aaron. First is he's an incredibly humble pastor, and I love that about him. Second, he loves God, and he loves God's Word. And third, he sees people as Jesus sees them. He sees them in, in light of the sacrifice that Jesus made for them, and he sees their potential even through their past pain and hurt. And I, I remember sitting at lunch with him and thinking to myself, and, and I sit with a lot of people that I admire, but we were sitting there, and I felt, I, I was like, I would love to work for this guy. Like, like it was like interesting that I was feeling that. Well, fast forward a couple months, and God opens doors, and here I am. Uh, my wife, Cecily, and my daughter, Aria, were here, and we are so excited to be a part of this team. Coastline is something special. This is a special, anyone thankful for their church here? <laughs> this is a special place, and, and we are so excited to be a part of what is happening here. So about a week before I, I moved out here, I found out that I'd be speaking my second weekend here. Uh, and so this is like my third week of uh, interviewing. They said if I do well this weekend, they'll give me the password to my church email. So, so give me some feedback here as I speak. <laughs> it's a, the, the, title I'm gonna, uh, the title of my message today is Weathered But Worthy, which would be a great description for all of us in the light of what Jesus did for us. And I'd like to do three things here today. First, I would like us to all walk out of here with a deeper under understanding of the worth that we have in God's eyes. Second, I would love to share my story. This is our church home, which means this is my family, so I want to be honest and vulnerable with you about kind of some of the things I've went through. And finally, I would love each of us to walk out of here, walk into this week in the confidence that only comes from believing in the finished work of the cross. So the Bible story that I want to use as the vehicle to get there is, is the story of Gideon. So this story is found in the book of Judges, and the book of Judges is, is kind of a beautiful reflection of God's jealousy and God's mercy. And so in the book of Judges, what keeps happening, the Israelites are in this constant cycle. They go through a period of peace and prosperity, and as, as soon as things get easy for them, they turn away from God, and God says, okay, you want to do things your own way? Then do things your own way, and every time they fall into subjugation to their enemies. And as soon as things get hard, they remember God, and they turn back to Him, and they cry out to Him. So on one hand, we have God's jealousy, because God doesn't want us worshiping other gods. And right, that can be a lot of things. That could be anything in our lives. And it's not because God needs our praise. It's because he understands what happens to us when we turn to anything but him. And so then the other thing in his mercy, he saves them from their own circumstances that, the, that they created. And so that's what judges really is, is every time they cry out to the Lord, God appoints someone to come and get them out of their situation. And Gideon is one of the people that God appoints to help the Israelites. And so in this passage I'm about to read to you, it's right before Gideon's about to go into a battle. And Gideon has a large army. He has 32,000 men. But even with this amount of men on his, in his army, he's still at a severe disadvantage because the other army has 134,000 men. And so in light of that knowledge, I'm going to read from Judges 7-4. The Lord said to Gideon, you have too many men. I cannot deliver Midian into their hands or Israel would boast against me. My own strength has saved me. Now announce to the army, anyone who trembles with fear may turn back and leave Mount Gilead. So 22,000 men left and 10,000 remained. 
But the Lord said to Gideon, there are still too many men. Take them down to the water, and I will thin them out for you there. If I say this one shall go with you, he shall go. But if I say this one shall not go with you, then he shall not go. So Gideon took the men down to the water. There the Lord told him, separate those who lap the water with their tongues as dogs who lap from those who kneel down to drink. 300 of them drank and cupped their hands, lapping like dogs, all the rest down on their knees to drink. The Lord said, with these 300 men that have lapped, I will save you, and the Midianites will fall into your hands. Let all others go home. And so Gideon sent the rest of the Israelites home, and now the camp of Midian lay below him in the valley. So we can quickly, I think, infer from this story that, that God is trying to teach Gideon an important lesson. And the lesson is that the battle, the victory, and all of the glory, it belongs to God. But what I want to look at here is not how God brought about victory for Gideon, but I want to look at the process in which God taught the lesson. The process in which God taught the lesson was to little by little make Gideon's army smaller. And in so doing, with each man that was sent home, Gideon was forced not to find his security in his soldiers, but he was forced to find security in his Savior, in God and the Father. And the fact that the Bible clearly states the size of the army, I think, is important. Gideon knew that number well, 32,000 men. I would assume that Gideon relied on that number pretty significantly. He probably had a list of all of his soldiers that would help him feel security in the battle to come. And what I believe and what I would like to propose today is that each of us has an own, our own list. We each have our own list. Not, not of soldiers, but we have a list of accolades, achievements, victories, and we keep that list in the back of our minds when we feel unworthy to remind us, to help us find security in the things that we have done instead of find security fully and completely in the Father. And I think it's easy to fall into this seemingly healthy or seemingly positive line of thinking, to go, I need to keep submitting my list of great things I've done to God in order to feel worthy. I need to keep reminding God of the things that I've done so that I can continue to feel worthy. But I've come to learn through a lot of heartache and useless striving and, and bad decisions that we'll never truly understand our worth. We'll never truly understand the worth we have in God's eyes until we stop trying to earn it. Because the very act of earning it the very thought process that I have to earn it is me admitting that I haven't fully received it. And your worth has nothing to do with what you do, but everything to do with what Jesus did on that cross. And this is really good news because we are all giant failures, really. To turn to your neighbor and say, you are a big letdown. <laughs> Some of you have been waiting for this moment. <laughs> Paul says it in Romans 3 this way, in probably one of the most encouraging Bible verses. He says, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is not one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways, and the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Well, that's all I've got for you guys today. I hope you feel encouraged. <laughs> Paul uses striking language here for a reason, because it is important for us to realize 
that we are absolutely unable to save ourselves. We are absolutely unable to save ourselves. I need Jesus every moment of every day. I am a mess without Jesus. I am not a good father. I am not a good husband. I am not a good friend without Jesus. I need him every moment. Anything I have that's good or good to offer is 100% accredited to the goodness of God. And as soon as I begin relying on myself, my list of accolades, the great things that I've done, is the moment things begin to go wrong. This is what happened to the Israelites. In Judges 5, the Israelites just enjoyed 40 years of peace. And so God gives them 40 years of peace and prosperity, and like clockwork, as soon as that 40 years is up, they do evil in the sight of the Lord. And God's like, okay, like you guys just don't seem to learn, so here you go. And they fall into subjugation again, and they cry out to the Lord. Because it's easy after a season of peace and prosperity to turn away from God and begin relying on yourself. It's really easy to fall into that trap. It's really easy to fall into that line of thinking. And I think if we're honest with ourselves, we can get to that place of self-confidence a lot sooner than 40 years. And for me, it took about a year. I need some water. I accepted my first full-time job in ministry in 2015. So I packed everything up that I own, and I put it into my Mini Cooper, and I drove from Minneapolis, Minnesota to Southern California. And if you know anything about negative 60-degree weather, that was a significant upgrade for me. That was a huge win. And so I moved to California, and at the time, I was in a relationship, and it wouldn't be very long before I got here that, that I would get married to this girl, and she would come and join me in California. And so I, I, my life starts to roll along, and I, I get a dog, and I get a motorcycle. It was awesome. And so I've got all of these things that I'm stacking up on my list, like first person in my family to go to college, moved to Southern California, full-time job in ministry. I'm married. And if you would have looked at my Instagram at the time, it would have seemed like my life was perfect. It looked really perfect on paper. But under the surface, things weren't going as well as they seemed. To say that my marriage was rocky from the start would probably be an understatement. We were fighting constantly. We were both unhappy. And me being the optimist that I am, I just kept saying, this is normal marriage stuff. Like, we moved. We both moved out of state. We're newly married. Having a dog is stressful. Like, this is going to pass. I just kept saying, it's going to pass. This is normal. Well, a year after being married, she comes home and and she walks in the door and she says, I, I don't think I want to be married to a pastor anymore. And um, after a short conversation, she walked out the door. And the people that I was comfortable telling, that they encouraged me and said, look, hey, this is normal. Sometimes like a spouse, like they need to take time to themselves. She'll come back. And days turn into weeks and, and weeks turn into months. And, I'm, and I hardly see her at all. And my pastors, when they kind of figure out what's going on, they're very loving and gracious, and they offer to pay for our marriage counseling or marriage retreats, and they're doing all, all the right things, but she refused to go to any of that stuff with me and, and to work on our marriage. And so about five or six months after she was gone, she calls me, and at this time, that would have been abnormal to get a random call for her, but she called to confirm what many people were telling me was happening, but I refused to believe that she was having an affair. And um, the next morning I saw her, and, and truly only by the grace of God, I was able to go, I can forgive you. The, here's the dates for some, a marriage retreat. Like, will you go with me? And she refused. And 
It wouldn't be long after that that uh, my pastor at the time, he encouraged me to, to file for divorce. Not because you can't come through this, but because it's impossible to come through it without both sides giving 110%. And so, and so I filed, and I, I want to say this, I, I don't tell you this to, to demonize her decision or to put all the blame on one person. Our marriage wasn't perfect because we both had our faults and, and we both have a side of the story. But for you to understand why I lost my sense of self, self-worth, it was sitting up every night hoping that she would decide to fight for our marriage and hoping that she would decide that I'm worth coming back to. And in the end, it, she never put the, the effort forth to, to work on our marriage. And, and when the divorce was finalized, I got to tell you, like, I had completely lost my sense of self-worth. See, I had watched my mom go through multiple divorces, and I remember telling myself, that will never be me. That will never be me. I'm never going to give up. But I found myself as a divorced man, and it, and it really crushed me. But like any hard-headed man, I just put my nose to the grindstone and kept working like nothing had happened. And if anyone in here knows, it's, it's a lot different to sweep your pain under the rug than to actually address what you're going through. And so it wouldn't be long after this that this girl would show me some attention at the church, and I rushed into her relationship with her. We started sleeping together, and after about two months, I came to my senses, and I broke it off with her, but I didn't tell anybody. And like the Bible says, what is hidden will come to light. When it all came out, I found myself fired from my church. And so all of the things that I had on my list to find myself worth in, they were gone. So here I am, I'm divorced, jobless, my resume is destroyed because of my own stupid decisions. And at the time, I really felt like I would never work in ministry again. Like I could never add any value to a church again. I really felt like I would never be married to another Christian woman again because who would see me and and want to be a part of my life? I had completely lost my sense of self-worth and I remember shortly after I was fired, getting down on my knees and, and praying to God, and, and I start telling God why I'm so worthless. And I start giving him my new list of things, which is my list of iniquities. I start telling him why I can never add value again and why I don't have any worth. I remember telling him, I have nothing that makes me worthy in your eyes anymore. And I remember God saying so clearly to me that you are just as worthy to me now with nothing as you were when you had everything. You are just as worthy to me now, empty-handed. And I had to have everything important to me stripped away to come to this revelation moment that I didn't understand the worth because I was still trying to earn it. I didn't understand my worth because I was trying to earn a gift that was freely given. And I had to lose everything to truly understand how worthy I was to God. Because the understanding of our intrinsic worth, it has to be built on the cross. It has to be built on God alone. Because a foundation of worth, it has to be Jesus, the cross, the unchanging God that we serve. Because if it's anything else, it is a false foundation. If we build our sense of worth on anything but Jesus, that is a false foundation. And when that foundation inevitably comes crashing through, you will be left grasping for whatever the first thing that makes you feel a little bit of worth is. For me, that's exactly what happened. 
When everything fell through, I jumped into a relationship because it was the first thing that made me feel any worth. And in the season when I needed to turn to Jesus to understand my worth, I turned everywhere else. And so my prayer today as we work through this message is that each of us would today begin to experience freedom from striving. Freedom to walk boldly in the truth of the finished work of the cross. And I think it may be helpful as we identify our worth to have a deeper understanding of his love for us. And so I'd love to show you scripturally how worthy we really are. First, we are made in his image. Genesis 1.26 says, Then God says, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. I love that this says, let us, because it's the idea of the Trinity having our conversation with one another. And so God the Father says to God the Son and the Holy Spirit, he says, you know, I think we need to make people in our image. And, and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit, they both shake their heads in agreement. And he says, the oceans and the mountains and the universe, it's incredible, but only people can be made in our image. Not even angels are made in the image of God. Husbands, turn to your wives and say, even the angels pale in comparison to your beauty. <laughs> what does it mean, though, to be made in the image of God? It's a very nice idea, but it's, it's a very interesting thing to say, I am made in the image of God. Well, what we know is that God is not physical. He is spirit, and he places his spirit in us. Second Corinthians says, God set his seal of ownership on us and put his strength in our hearts as a deposit. So this means that we are created to be image bearers of God. So let me give you an example of this. Let's look at the Trinity. I love this definition for the Trinity, and the, and the Trinity can never be fully comprehended by finite minds, but I still love this definition. It's the Trinity is how God communicates the importance of relationship within his own nature. Don't you love that? The Trinity is how God communicates the importance of relationship within his own nature. So God is relational. And because God is relational, we are called to be relational. That's why one of the very important things that we do here at Coastline Church is we like to be in groups. We encourage you to be in groups, not because Pastor Aaron loves the idea of groups, but because groups reflect the image of God. I shared my story with you, and they did not get enough credit in my message, but I had a group when I went through my hard season. And it wasn't called a life group, but I had seven or eight people who loved me unconditionally. They never looked down on me for my mistakes. They challenged me, prayed with me, believed with me, and they, along with God, are the only reason I'm standing here today. Church, you got to have a group of people, because I know that those relationships that got me through that hard season, that is a reflection of the image of God. Of all creation and all the universe, only we are made in the image of God. Second is Jesus died for us. Now, I want to dispel the notion that that's simple theology. Because in America, everyone has probably heard that phrase, like, Jesus died for your sins. But it's one thing to be able to say the words, and it's another thing to be able to completely believe that in your heart. Because when you completely believe that in your heart, you walk in a confidence knowing that nothing you've done and nothing you will do isn't covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. And most of us struggle believing that wholly and completely. But Romans 5.8 says, but God demonstrated his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 
Now, there's like this idea in a lot of Christian circles, or especially people who don't know God yet, that there's a proper like order to having a relationship with God. And that proper order is, is get your heart cleaned up, get yourself together, and then God will want something to do with you. But I love in, in Revelation, it says Jesus stands at the door and knocks. Now, you have like different like friend groups, right? And so when you invite someone to your house, there's like a friend group that you have where you spend like an hour and a half cleaning your house before they get there because you want it to be like completely spotless before they walk in the front door. But then you have like a, cl a close group of friends where you're like, you get what you get, dude. Like, I've got a two-year-old, and so, like, if you come to our place, like, you might find a potato between the cushions of the couch. Like, that's just the way it is. Like, and so, you have that group of friends that you're completely comfortable, like, whatever it looks like, just come over, because you know that they want to be with you, and they're not worried about what your house looks like, right? That's Jesus. That's Jesus. Jesus wants to be the type of friend with you where you know he just wants to be with you, not because of your good works, but in spite of all you've done. Isn't that awesome? I love that the Bible says that God is a friend. I love that it says that Abraham was a friend of God, which means we can be a friend of Jesus. And so, so the world may say you have to get it all together before you invite Jesus into your heart, but Jesus says, come into relationship with me, and through that relationship, you will become more righteous. Through the power of the grace of Jesus Christ, you will become more righteous, not become righteous so that Jesus can come in, invite him into your heart, and then you will become righteous. I love that that's the proper order. I love that that's the proper order of a relationship with Jesus. And I got to tell you, my wife Cecily, when, when we started hanging out, I was not the best version of myself. Like, I, I would go as far to say that I was, like, the worst version of myself. And me and Seth, like, we really became friends and got closer after I was fired from my job. And nothing about the early stages of our relationship, nothing about me in those early, in those early stages earned the worth that she saw in me. But she never once made me feel unworthy, never once made me feel like I had to prove myself, she just saw the good in me and loved me where I was at. And I, I didn't discern it. I, I certainly didn't earn it. But I'm forever grateful that even though I was completely unworthy in that season, she saw my worth. And I want you to know that that's the way that Jesus loves us, is that we are actually completely unworthy of his love, but he still finds worth in us. And I think that's one of the great paradoxes of Christianity is that though we are completely unworthy, we have immense worth in the eyes of God. Is anyone thankful for that? I know I'm thankful for that. And your worth, it can actually be measured. In 1 Corinthians 6.20, it says, you were bought with a price. And so we look at price tags to determine the worth of something on earth in a worldly sense. Is there a receipt long enough for the Son of God like, are there enough zeros that can, like, go across the entire universe? That means if, if the Son of God is how we determine our worth, the Son of God dying for us, the Son of God has infinite worth, which means if he laid his life down for you, you must have infinite worth too. Isn't that good news, church? Come on, I'm feeling a little worthy right now. The last thing is, is God wants relationship with us. And wants is the key word. Because here's the thing, here's the thing about God, is God doesn't need anything. 
God is perfect. He is the beginning, the end. He is the alpha and the omega. He doesn't need anything because if he needed something, right, he wouldn't be perfect. So nothing can be added to him. Nothing can be taken away. He is perfect. So if he created us and saw that it was good, it's because he wanted relationship with us, not because he needed it. And John 3.16 says this, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. So He wants relationship with us, and He wants eternal relationship with us. Isn't that crazy? Like, I know that, like, I, I can be annoying sometimes. Like, my wife loves me a lot, but even she's like, look, I need a break from you sometimes. Like, and I totally get it. But God is saying, yeah, you're a little annoying, Zach, but I want to spend eternity with you. I want you in my house forever. Well, that means we have eternal worth. It means the worth that we hold in God's eyes, it transcends time. Isn't that good news? Isn't that crazy? It's crazy to me that the creator of the universe looks at me in my sin, knows everything about me, knows every thought I've ever had, and he says, I want you. I want you just as you are. Now, despite all of the scriptural evidence of our worth, of God's love, we have an incredibly hard time truly believing it. Even after I have this revelation of my worth in God's eyes, I kept battling with him, trying to convince him of how unworthy I was. For the whole year after I was fired, before I came back on in ministry, I remember I would constantly tell God, why I could never do ministry again. Let me list for you, God, all of the reasons that, that you can never use me again. Has anyone ever done that? Anyone ever been called by God and like tried to convince him of why you're unworthy? I know, I know that I fall into that trap a lot of times. And, and if you've ever found yourself doing that, you're in good company because most of, most of the people in the Bible did the same thing. Before Gideon was called, he actually did the same thing. And Judges 6.15 says, Gideon says to the Lord, pardon me, my Lord. He's very polite. Gideon replied, but how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. So I feel like we fall into this trap so often, thinking that we have to prove ourselves or, or be at a certain place in our lives before God can use us. But the fact is, is that through the blood of the cross, God uses us in spite of all of the things that we've done. And honestly, I think it's very logical to know yourself, to know everything that you've ever done that's wrong, everything you've hidden, every thought that you've had. I think it's very logical to feel unworthy. Like, it's a reasonable line of thought to go, with ever, all my stuff, how could a perfect holy God ever want to use me? But aren't you thankful you serve a God that exists outside the worldly realm of reason and logic? Is anyone thankful for that here? Lately, God has really been revealing to me like how big he really is. God has no beginning. He has no end. And the facets of his unitary being exist at all times for eternity. What do I mean? God is in perfect unity with every piece of his character always. So like there's like this line of thinking where like the God of the Old Testament, like he was very judgmental, like he really loved, loved justice. And then the God of the New Testament, like he's really merciful and loving, like they're two different people, like, like he changed based on Jesus coming. But God is the same person. The Bible said he never changes, which means his love exists in perfect unity as long 
just like his justice and his grace, they all exist in perfect unity always. So when we talk about the love and the grace of our Father, we are saying that his abounding and overwhelming love and grace, it's to infinity and beyond. Buds Lightyear, anyone? <laughs> our most intellectual words and our highest thoughts cannot possibly grasp the greatness of our God. And so I think that we get into these modes where we keep replaying all of our regrets. And to be honest, like those regrets and those iniquities and that thought process, that can seem like a mountain. That can feel like a mountain in front of us. It can feel like a weight on our shoulders. And, and, and though our iniquities and all of those thoughts and all of those regrets, they seem like a mountain, a mountain nevertheless, it does have definable boundaries. No matter how big a mountain is, it's only so wide, it's only so tall, it's, its weight may be immense, but it can still be weighed. But who can define the limitless grace of our God? Who can define the limitless grace of our God? And so I really feel that there are some people here today who have been carrying that mountain for a long time of shame, of regret, of iniquities, and God is beckoning us today to throw that mountain of shame into the limitless grace of God and watch it disappear like a grain of sand against the backdrop of his unlimited love. God is asking us to throw it all at him because Romans 5.20 says, where sin abounds, how much more does grace abound? I got to tell you, this idea of Coastline's kind of grace culture that it has, it really drew me to the church. And, And it's funny to say something like grace culture because it actually is different in the church world. Because a lot of churches, they're not as vulnerable and honest as Pastor Aaron is, and I love that about him. And, and a lot of people walk into churches and they immediately feel judged. But what I love is that when I walked through those front doors when I was interviewing, I felt just a love and an acceptance and a joy in this house. And I think that comes from the leadership loving and accepting people where they're at. Because grace culture is just Christ culture. It, it, it is exactly the way that we should be to other believers and to non-believers, to love and to have grace. I love that about Coastline, that we love people where they're at. It's a church. We've got to tear up those lists. The lists that keep us in a constant cycle of trying to prove ourselves to God, or even in a constant cycle of reliving your regrets, we have to tear up those lists. Because this is what God is trying to teach Gideon. God is trying to teach Gideon he needs to rely on him for the victory. But the underlying truth of the story is that we need to rely on God for everything. That's why when God is speaking to Moses, he says, I am. What, what should you call me? You should call me I am. So whatever you're going through right now, God can be the answer to it. I love that about God. He is the I am. When I lost my job, the on-ramp back into ministry it required me to rely completely on God because there was nothing that I could do in myself through my good works that was going to get me back into ministry. And I think there are times in our lives that, that God will allow us to come to a place where we have to be completely desperate for him before he brings us to the next stage. Because what I found was that once I got desperate, once I came to that place of desperation, I found restoration. 
And I had to have everything torn away that I thought was good about me to come to the place where I could completely rely on God. And I got to tell you that my life on the other side of restoration is so much better than I could have ever imagined. My family, my wife, my daughter are more than I could ever possibly have thought. That perfect Instagram life I thought I had was nothing compared to how God has blessed me today. And standing up here is further testament that God is doing a work in my life. In spite of the things that I have done, in spite of my mistakes, God continues to use me. And honestly, it doesn't make sense, but I'm glad that I serve a God that doesn't always make worldly sense. God wants you to live free from striving, free from striving for his love and affection. But I think that one of the greatest tools of the enemy, one of the greatest tools that the enemy uses to trick us, to keep us far from God, is to confuse the meaning of condemnation and conviction. The enemy tries to switch those two words or confuse those words in our minds. Because here's the deal. In Romans it says, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's easy to read that verse and think to myself, there's less condemnation. Or, or like, there's no condemnation until I make a mistake. No, the Bible's very clear about this. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So here's the deal. Condemnation will have you convincing yourself you need to be far from God because you aren't worthy. That's what condemnation does. Conviction will remind you of the finished work of the cross and that you are righteous through the work that Jesus did on that cross. See, that's the difference because the enemy wants you to live in condemnation because that'll keep you far from God. He doesn't want you to accept fully the finished work of the cross because when you accept fully the finished work of the cross, that's when you'll see God working in a big way in your life. Because you won't be held back by your mistakes anymore, but you'll walk in the confidence that can only come through Jesus Christ. And church, we put condemnation on ourselves. We put it on ourselves because we listen to the wrong voices. In a worldly sense, the world says, you got to work for your worth. Once you put in the work, then you've got your worth. And, and, that, and that makes a lot of sense logically. But no matter how much you work, you can lose all that based on some bad decisions you've made in your past. I mean, look at our culture right now. Look at this cancel culture that we live in right now. It doesn't matter how much good you do. It doesn't matter the good decision that you made. Someone can find a tweet that you posted 10 years ago, and you're done. You're canceled. We're done with you. We don't want anything to do with you. But I love that Jesus is so opposite to the culture of the world. He says, I see everything you've done, and I'm going to take the heat for that. And as a bonus, all your present and future failures, I'm going to take the heat for those too. I love that about Jesus. Church, you cannot strive for what is freely given. You have worth in Jesus' eyes. And I love that it says in Jeremiah, this is what it says, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. Turn to your neighbor and say, I had worth from the womb. I had worth in the womb. Come on. That means that you had worth 
from the moment of conception to, to the whole process. God knew you. He gave you worth. You were set apart before you were born, which means God knew everything about you, and he still said, you are worthy. That's why the three most hopeful, powerful, universe-shaking words in the world is, it is finished. Come on, church. It is finished. Church, it's done, so live like it's finished. Live in the full confidence that the work of Christ is truly finished. Because here's the deal, and here's the challenge to take home. When you live like you have to finish the work of Jesus, you cheapen his sacrifice. When you live like you have to finish what he started, you cheapen his sacrifice. So live in the full knowledge that what he did is complete. It is done. You are worthy in the name of Jesus. Through the blood of the cross, you are washed white as snow. I thought the things on my list of accomplishments was what made me worthy. I thought the accolades that I could put on my resume made me worthy. I thought I could work into my worth. But church, it's not our work that makes us worthy. It's what Jesus did on that cross that makes us worthy. And that's the good news. And as we come to a close here, I'd like to share something with you. I just finished reading this book called Knowledge of the Holy. And, and uh, it's written by Tozer. And he said something that's so good, I wanted to close my message out with it. And so this is what it says. How unutterably sweet is the knowledge that our heavenly Father knows us completely. No talebearer can inform on us. No enemy can make an accusation stick. No forgotten skeleton can come tumbling out of some hidden closet to abash us and expose our past. No unexpected weakness in our character can come to light to turn God away from us. Since he knew us utterly before we knew him and called us to himself in the full knowledge that everything was against us. In short, church, no matter where you've been, what you did last month, 10 years ago, last week, last night, you are worthy in the sight of God. You are called. You are set apart. That is the way that God sees you. And no matter what the world says, the world cannot cancel who God has called. So I'd like to pray for two groups of people with eyes closed and heads bowed around the room. The first group of people for those who have been in the constant struggle trying to earn your worth. If that's you, if you've been struggling to feel worthy, if you've been rehearsing past hurt in your mind, fell far from God because of your failures, can you put your hand over your heart as we pray? God, I pray that faith would rise in this place. Give us the faith to believe that those three words, it is finished, is absolute truth. I pray that the chains of striving for worth would be broken in the name of Jesus. God, allow us to walk in the confidence that can only come from the cross of Jesus Christ and remind us of the finished work that has allowed us to share in your righteousness. And whenever the enemy tries to weigh us down by the burden of our sin, remind us that your yoke is easy and your burden is light. And then with all eyes remaining closed, the second group is anyone who would like to make a decision for Jesus today. If that's you, put your hand over your heart as we pray. God, I thank you that while I was still a sinner, 
you sent your son to die for me. You did all the heavy lifting on my behalf and chose to live, and I choose to live holy and completely for you. So continue to make me more like you and less like me. Amen. Church, can we stand all across this room? If you're gonna walk in the full confidence of the Christ, of Christ and the finished work of the cross this week, can we raise our hands right now as we get ready to worship? God, we give it all to you, God. We say right now that we accept the full truth of the cross. God, we know that it is finished and we walk boldly in that blood that you shed for us, God. So this week, we walk in the full confidence that it is finished, God. And we give you all the praise, all the glory, all the honor in your name, Jesus. We say that we love you, Lord. Amen.